The following sermon is from Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to FAPC.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Let's listen in, my friends, to this precarious and eerily familiar moment as it echoes to us from Genesis chapter 50, beginning with the 15th verse. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him. So they approached Joseph saying, your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him and said, we are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good. In order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. What does God do? A, a couple of years ago, while sitting downstairs at a craft table, a curly-haired poppet gluing sprinkles on a construction paper pumpkin asked me this question. Pastor Scott, what does God do? After talking for a bit, I realized she was asking me about God's day. She wanted to know, does God wake up in the morning? Does God eat breakfast? Where does God work? What's God's day like? What does God do? I've thought a lot about that conversation, mostly because this young artist's question stays with us. As the years go by, we ask with growing urgency, what does God do? When trouble comes, when life takes a hard turn, we wonder, is God in the midst of this? Or is God a distant observer? Having created the cosmos, does God stand quietly on the sidelines watching history unfold? Is God a passive witness to good and evil, wars 
and illnesses, car crashes, and heartbreak. If an asteroid were to come tumbling out of some distant corner of space, threatening to demolish Earth, would God's hand reach out and deflect it? Or would it be up to us to try and save ourselves? Does God meddle in the course of human affairs? And if so, how? Does God pull big levers? Does God sway political movements and, and influence the path of history? Does God do micro-interventions? Does God heal people from sickness? Surely our tradition supports that. Does God get even more granular? Will God help you on your math test? Will God get you a date? Will God help you sleep through the night? Or, or is God something altogether different? What, what if God is neither an absent landlord nor a helicopter parent? Could God be the energy running through our veins, the pulse animating all of life? Is, is God the thing in our souls tugging us toward beauty? Is, is God a gorgeous sunrise? <laughs> And does that mean God is also a devastating storm? Is God truth? Love? Underneath all of these questions, a bigger question swims, a whale drifting under our little boats. What is God? How much can we confidently say really know about God? Is God best encountered in, in humble silence, in, in the poetry of, of the Psalms, in the laments of the suffering, in the shivering hope of people huddled along the border between Belarus and Poland, in the bloody terror of the cross of Christ. Last week, Pastor Jonah preached a wonderful sermon based on the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah describes God as a powerful force, a righteous being whose desires shape human history. According to Jeremiah, God uses a massive event, the armed invasion of a country and the enslavement of a nation of people to turn those people back toward faithful living. I love Jeremiah's passion but I'm not sure I've experienced Jeremiah's God. Jeremiah points at history and says, look, see, God's hand is clearly at work there. I read the news, talk to a struggling friend, pray for members of this congregation and ask, where is this God who influences human history? Why is it taking so long to get everything right? Most days, I feel more like Job than Jeremiah. What does God do? Do you know the story 
of the Emperor Constantine. In the year 312, Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity. Constantine's conversion was a clear turning point for the early church and for the history of the world. Not only did Constantine profess his belief in Christ, but he became a patron of the faith. He returned stolen property to Christians, property that had been confiscated by his brutal predecessor, Diocletian. Constantine appointed Christians, Christians who were just years earlier being terribly persecuted, he appointed Christians to high-ranking positions in his government, and he built churches. Constantine's embrace of Christianity was a total game-changer. In fact, it's hard to imagine that this world would have 2.5 billion Christians in it today if it were not for Constantine's conversion and his support for the fledgling faith. The simply enormous outcomes that came from this event have prompted many to ask why. Why did Constantine convert? Now, if you ask the ancient church, and specifically the monk Eusebius, great name, Eusebius, those of you who are thinking about child names for the future, wouldn't that be a great one? <laughs> monk Eusebius wrote down a story that goes like this. Prior to the Battle of Milvian Bridge, one of the most important battles in the history of humankind, prior to that battle, Prior to uniting the Roman Empire under his rule in 312, Constantine had a vision floating in the sky over what would soon be a battlefield. Constantine saw the image of a cross forged from light. According to Eusebius, Constantine also heard a voice saying, by this sign you shall conquer. And there you have it, Constantine went on to win the battle. He unified the Roman Empire and soon thereafter declared himself to be a Christian. After ending persecutions against Christians and other religions, Constantine decreed in 321 that Sunday should be a day of rest for people all across the empire. In fact, Many argue that it's Constantine who gives us the, the earliest form of what is still today our working week. All this happens, Eusebius asserts, because God visited Constantine with a vision changing the course of human history. Now, political historians tell a somewhat different story. They describe Constantine as a savvy ruler who knew that to unite the fractious Roman Empire, he needed to have the poorest citizens in the realm on his side. And many of the poorest people were, you guessed it, Christians. As such, Constantine's conversion was realpolitik. The emperor went all in on religious tolerance because he knew that it would help him rule. It's a fascinating debate, right? What, what really got the dominoes tumbling? Did God nudge 
Constantine toward faith and provide an enormous boost for Christianity with a battlefield vision? Or did this savvy politician correctly assess the prevailing winds and co-opt a growing religious movement to cement his authority? Some, entering this argument, actually suggest a third option. Did Constantine convert to Christianity not because of a mystical experience or out of political expedience, but because his mother, Helena, who was a Christian, invited him into the faith, into relationship with the suffering servant Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> Looking back over our own lives, many of us have similar questions. Was that God <laughs> or was it my mother? <laughs> did I just experience the judgment of heaven or did I simply make a bad decision? Did I act there out of deep faith or am I a cynic using faith for my own ends? Is God really involved in my life? What does God do? In today's text, Joseph's brothers are worried. They worry that their dad's death will free Joseph to take retribution for all their evil plans. Soon the axe will fall. What should they do? They scheme again. <laughs> Let's tell Joseph that on his deathbed, dad said, you need to forgive your brothers. It's not much of a plan, but it's the only hope they've got. They tell their lie and Joseph begins to weep. Why does he weep? Is he weeping because he's thinking of his recently deceased dad? Does he weep because he buys his brother's story? Or does he weep because his brothers are such colossal duds? Does he weep hearing them describe themselves as servants of God, servants of God who sold him into slavery? If that label is in any way true, it's a painful irony. Maybe Joseph weeps because he sees through their scheme. Maybe he thinks, they haven't changed, not really. Maybe Joseph weeps because family is so doggone messy, such a hair-pulling blend of love and frustration, wounds and bonds, life forged in blood spilt and blood shared. Does he weep in the face of human brokenness? His brokenness, his brother's brokenness? Or, or does he weep because despite the pain and the suffering, the loss they have all endured, he still senses God in the midst of it? Even though you intended to do harm to me, Joseph says through his tears, 
God intended it for good. What does God do? The cover of today's bulletin is a painting by Italian Baroque artist Giovanni Francesco Barbieri. Like most artists, Barbieri depicts God as someone the local culture would recognize. And in this case, God looks kind of like an older Italian man in regal clothes. But the painter doesn't stop there. Barbieri himself was born with his eyes crossed. In the days before corrective surgery, this artist needed to get really close to the canvas and he would squint while painting. This earned him the nickname Il Guercino, the squinter. In today's painting, Il Guercino plays with his own story. God draws close, very close to an orb held by a cherub. It is the world furrowing the divine brow, squeezing muscles that pull the eyes into focus. God squints at the world. The Holy One looks kind, but also perplexed. Is God wondering what to do? Maybe. It, it sounds almost blasphemous, but I like this baffled-looking God. I, I would rather picture God squinting at the messes we humans make than orchestrating troubles to castigate our sorry souls. I've listened. I've listened to theological arguments in which people suggest that God causes or permits suffering for some lofty purpose, but I cannot go there. Instead, I take comfort in Joseph's words. It can be difficult, well nigh impossible at times to identify God's hand in world events and in our own lives, but still there are times, inflection moments, when we dare to say, yes, harm was your intent, but God, after squinting long and hard, got involved. In countless small ways, God leaned on the scale and slowly a horrible situation began to move toward the good. Is that true? Is that how God works? Over the last three months, the president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, developed a plan to punish the European Union for the sanctions they leveled against his country. In refugee communities across the Middle East, Lukashenko let it be known that it was possible to begin a new life in the European Union by entering through Belarus. Responding to this invitation, Iraqi, Syrian, 
and Kurdish refugees put up whatever cash they could scrape together for a visa and a flight to Belarus. When their flights landed, these people were loaded on military buses. They were driven to the Belarus border with Poland and Lithuania. And there they were given maps of the heavily forested territory in front of them and wire cutters to make holes in the fences. On the other side of these fences, Lithuania and Poland declared that they would not admit these people. And they refused to allow doctors or journalists to approach the border. Polish officials describe the appalling situation as a ploy by Belarus to weaponize migrants. At this moment, thousands of refugees, many of whom are families with young children, are stranded or hiding along the border of Belarus, Poland, and Lithuania in freezing conditions. These poor souls are caught between razor wire and armed troops. They are not wanted by the European Union, nor are they wanted by the country that lured them there in the first place. How can these national powers have done this? Has humanity stooped so low that we're now willing to weaponize impoverished, barely clinging to hope people using them as sacrificial pawns in a terrible geopolitical chess game. Is it any wonder that God looks at the world and squints? <laughs> Human cruelty truly outstrips the imagination. I was in a miserable funk over all this on Friday and then I read about a program put in place just this past week by the Franciscan charitable arm of the Roman Catholic Church in Poland. It's called Tents of Hope. Tents of Hope is an effort focused on sending supplies to Polish parishes near the Belarus border. These supply kits contain tents, foil blankets, water, energy bars, and hand warmers. And churches have been instructed to distribute these supplies to refugees. In a letter just two days ago explaining the plan, Archbishop Stanislav Gedecki wrote, without prejudice to the security of the Republic of Poland and its citizens, those in need must be shown our solidarity. In the current situation, the message of the parable of the Good Samaritan sounds even more urgent and awaits universal implementation. The mission of the church, Gadecki continued, is first and foremost to preach the gospel. Consequently, when help must be given to strangers, we must not shy away from it. 
reading his words on Friday, I began to weep. And then I emailed Christine Boyle, our director of outreach, and asked her to send funds from this church's emergency outreach account to Tents of Hope. Even though you intended to do harm to me, Joseph said through his tears, God intended it for good. God, Joseph knows, does not control every human action or every moment in history. Instead, God looks at the world, looks at humanity's evil plans, and then God goes to work. God recruits allies. God leans on the scale. God tilts circumstances toward the good. Now, all this is a less dramatic, less rapid response than we might like. It's an exercise in an unusual sort of power. And if you're going to be Christian, you've got to get used to this sort of power. The Apostle Paul called it power made perfect in weakness, the power of Christ. It is the way God partners with creation, with us, to nudge things toward the good. This is not the most conventional way to paint the Holy One. But it strikes me as being true. What does God do? God squints. The grace of Christ attend you. The love of God surround you. The comfort of the Holy Spirit keep you, that you may live in faith, abound in hope, and grow in love, both now and forevermore. Amen.